You're listening to a message provided by Antioch Bible Baptist Church in Gladstone, Missouri. We intend this to be a helpful resource to you as you grow in your walk with Jesus Christ. This is intended especially for those who are unable to attend our worship gatherings and therefore were unable to hear the teaching of God's Word. This should not replace your gathering with our church as a member. If you're checking us out for the first time and are looking for a church to visit, we hope that you enjoy this content and that it impacts you personally. Thanks for listening. I want you to go back with me to January 1st of 2020. And imagine that we are at a party together. Now I know pastor and party don't typically go together very well, so you gotta imagine it with me, all right? That we are at a party together. And I come to you and say that in 2020, we will be prevented from going to church together, gathering as believers for a few months, that you would not be able to go back to your offices the way you want to, that you wouldn't be able to go to the gym and work out, that you wouldn't be able to get your hair cut for a few months because the barbers would close down, that you wouldn't be able to go to your favorite restaurant and you wouldn't be able to have elective surgeries and you would be using a software called Zoom that would consume your life for the next few months. If at that party on January the 1st, 2020, I would have said those things to you, you probably would have been like, Steve has lost his ever-loving mind. Obviously, the New Year's Eve party that he went to had really worn him out, and he's not, he's not thinking clearly, right? Because some things only make sense when you look back at them. Uh, think, think about getting married. Before you get married, you know everything about marriage, right? Then you get married and you look back at your premarital counseling and think, that's why the premarital counselor said that, right? But the same thing is true of parenting. Everybody is the greatest parent known to mankind before they have kids. They've read all the books, they've got it figured out. And then you have four kids and you look back and it's like, well, I've learned some things along the way, right? I, I've learned uh, what it means to be a parent. So some things only make sense when we look back at them. Over the next several weeks, specifically as we head to Easter, I want us to take a journey through what is referred to in scripture as Jesus' farewell discourse. It comes in the section of scripture where John records the words for Je for, of Jesus for us in John 13 through John 18. It is known as the farewell discourse of Jesus. Throughout scripture, you find these farewell discourses. You find that Jacob gave a farewell discourse as he's about to die in Genesis chapter 49. You find Moses does the same thing. And we've been studying the life of Moses as we went through the book of Exodus, but we find that Moses will give a farewell discourse in Deuteronomy chapter 31 through chapter 34. You see, in Jewish culture, it was common for the person who was about to die to be surrounded by his closest friends and family, and they would talk about their concerns with them and about how they would encourage them to move on after they had died. 
And so when we come to Jesus' farewell discourse, this is what we're coming to. We're coming to a moment where Jesus is about to die. You see, John 13 through John 18 is the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. So we're coming to the end of his life. He's gathered his closest followers, his closest friends together, and he's gonna talk to them about where do they go from here? After he's gone, what is life gonna look like for them? What should they do? How should they continue to follow Jesus? And so we come to Jesus' farewell discourse in John 13, and we're gonna look specifically in our time together over the next several weeks in John 13 through 31 through chapter 16 and verse 33. So John 13, one sets up for us the context of this discourse. If you look with me in John 13, one, it says this, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So as John begins this chapter, he's setting us up for what is coming. He's about to have a Passover meal with his disciples. And he knows that his time is about to come where he's gonna die on the cross, be buried and come back to life. And so he's gathered with them for the feast of the Passover. Now, this should take our minds back to the study of Exodus. Remember when the Passover was instituted in the book of Exodus because they were in slavery and the last plague, they applied the blood of the, door, the, blood of the lamb to a doorpost and they would pass over that night when it would kill all the firstborn children. And so God said, I want you to implement this feast of the Passover. Once a year, I want you to gather and I want you to remember this. And so Jesus is gathering with his disciples to remember what God had done for the children of Israel. And I love that it says that he loved his own who were in the world and he loved them to the end. The thing that we love about Jesus is that his love for us is to the end. Say that, Pastor. That it never wears out, it never comes up short. His love for us loves us all the way to the end. I love the way that John words it. And so here's what happens. Jesus gathers with his disciples in an upper room together. This is where the feast of the Passover is happening. And when he gathers with the disciples, they sit down and their tables are different than our tables. Their tables were close to the ground and they sat on basically pillows on the ground. They sort of reclined, leaned on their elbows when they would eat. And so Jesus and his disciples are reclining around this table. And as they begin to eat together, the Bible says that Jesus gets up and he does something that is shocking. He does something that only a servant would do, only the lowest paid person in the house would do. Jesus gets up and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. This was a custom that they would do when you would go into a house because you wore sandals and it was dirty. You would wash the feet before you would go in. And Jesus does something that not the creator of the universe is supposed to do, right? Like this is him humbling himself and he goes around and he washes all of the disciples' feet and some of them get a little mouthy with him, Peter specifically about you're not gonna wash my feet. And he's like, Peter, you gotta let me do this. And he's like, then wash my whole body. Like Peter goes too far with it. But Jesus is just giving the example of, this is an example I'm setting for you. And he says, this is what I want you to do for each other. 
I want you to serve each other. I want you to love each other in this way. And so Jesus washes all the disciples' feet and they sit down and continue to eat their meal together. And then Jesus makes the statement that somebody's gonna, in the group of this 12 closest followers of Jesus, one of them's gonna deny Jesus. One of them is gonna, is, is gonna turn his back on Jesus. And he says, whoever I hand this bread to is the one that is gonna do that. So you come to John 13 in verse 30, and it says, so after receiving the morsel of bread, this is a guy by the name of Judas, he immediately went out. So at that moment, Judas starts Jesus going to the cross, right? At that moment, as he's gonna go, to, he's gonna go betray Jesus and they're gonna come find Jesus. This is the moment, all that, this is the 24 hours, right? This is where it starts right here. And it says this, and I, I love that John gave us some context. He said, and it was night. Now, literally, it was night, but also figuratively, night was coming. The darkest night on earth was coming when Jesus would die on the cross for our sins. So this gives us the context. Jesus' time has come. He's at the feast of the Passover. The one who had betrayed him, Judas, is gone now. So genuinely in the room are only his closest followers and friends. Everyone else is gone. And now Jesus is gonna talk to them. And I want you to keep in mind Jesus is not standing up lecturing them. He's sitting at a table. If I could, I would sit at a table today and, and talk to you. That, that's the feeling that is, they're sitting around the table. This is Jesus' heart for his closest followers, his closest friends of what life's gonna look like after he is gone. Today, we're gonna look specifically in John 13, we're gonna look at verses 31 through 35. So look there with me together. John 13, 31 through 35. And it says this, when he had gone out, that's Judas. So now Judas is starting Jesus' descent to the cross. Jesus said to his closest friends and followers, this is his farewell discourse, his last words to them about how life will go after he is gone. It says this, now the son of man is glor glorified. Now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while and I am with you. You will seek me and just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So the first idea that we see that Jesus wanted his closest friends and followers to know was that he was going to be glorified and God was going to be glorified through him. You see, we know that Jesus lived for the glory of God. 
Jesus was thinking about what was to come. And as the disciples would go through the death, burial, and resurrection, and Jesus' ascension back into heaven, as they would look back to this farewell discourse, the first thing that he wanted to be on their mind is glorifying God, is magnifying God. Look, look at the, the text. Look how many times in two verses he uses this term glorify or magnify. He glorified. God is glorified. God is glorified. God will glorify and glorify. It's like he's trying to get a point across to them. You repeat things that you want them to remember and he's wanting them to remember that what is about to come is to glorify God. In the whole of the book of John, John uses the term glorify 23 times. So in these short two verses, he uses it five times. Almost a third of the term glorify is used in these verses. Jesus is trying to get his point across to his disciples that the son of man, that is Jesus, the son of man, is a reference back to the prophecy of Daniel. This son of man was a man of power and authority and he's saying Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy the son of man is going to be magnified and then God will be magnified through him and glorify in him at once as well to glorify something is to magnify it it is it is to make much of something or someone you, you know what this looks like in your life if you scroll through Instagram, right? And you begin to see people that magnify or they glorify a certain product. Like this is the answer to all of your problems, right? Just get this one pill or this one oil or this, right? What are they doing? They're, I'm not trying to make fun. I'm just saying, what are they doing? They're magnified. Like it's natural that things that influence, we magnify those things. We glorify them. We do the same with sports, right? We love our sports. And so we magnify these guys and these gals through how they play and what they do. It, it comes to us in a way naturally because we were created to glorify God. In the garden, we were created to make much of our creator. And so we have a tendency to attach it to things that aren't of eternal value, but we need to be reminded that God was glorified through Jesus. And how was God going to be magnified or glorified through Jesus? Well, go back to John chapter 12 and listen to Jesus talk some more about this idea of magnifying and and glorifying his father. In John chapter 12 and verse 23, Jesus answered them, the hour has come, and he uses this term again, the son of man, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified, to be magnified. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So that's sort of a weird way to talk about magnifying something, to talk about death. He says in verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. Again, this doesn't seem like magnification, right? This seems, death doesn't seem like magnification. But he says someone who loses his life will actually gain it. He says whoever loses his life uh, loves his life will lose it and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. Then listen to verse 27. 
Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. Why would his soul be troubled if God's going to be glorified through him? If God's going to be magnified through his life, why would his soul be troubled? And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, Jesus says, I have come to this hour. And then he prays this prayer. Father, glorify your name. Why is there such a heaviness with the glorifying of God? What is that heaviness? The cross. Glorifying God is going to come through the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, we love to think of glorifying God by standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon and looking out over the vastness and think, wow, the glory of God. And there's truth in that. We stand on the edge of the ocean and we look out in the endless sea and, and we, we glorify God when we, we see that. We look at that and say, wow, that is magnificent. That, that's what we like to think about when we think about glorifying God. And yet in this moment, as Jesus is talking to his followers, his closest friends, he's saying the son of man is going to be glorified and it's not gonna be glorified by standing out and looking over the vastness of the Grand Canyon. He's going to be glorified by hanging on a cross for your and I's sin. This is how the son of man will be glorified and God will be glorified in the son of man. It is seen in the cross of Jesus Christ. When God thinks of glorifying his son, he thinks of the cross, he thinks of suffering. I wonder how our lives would change if we began to see the suffering that comes in our lives, not as God's anger at us, but as God glorifying himself through us. Because as he is going to glorify his son, he's going to glorify him by putting his, the wrath that was rightfully ours on him. And so right out of the gate, Jesus gets to glorifying God and himself being glorified. Then look at verse 33. In verse 33, Jesus says, little children. Now we read that today and think, well, that's sort of a degrading way to talk to grown men, right? Like if, if it would be weird for me to say today, hey, little children, welcome, right? Like that, that's, that's a weird thing. So what you have to understand is this is a term of endearment in how Jesus is talking to his disciples. This is a, a term that he's using that of, of just love for them. It, it, if you have kids or you have a parent who has a nickname for you. That, that's a term of endearment, right? They, they use that name as, as a way to, to say they love you. They're not just gonna call you Steve. They have a special name for you. So the same thing is true here. Jesus is speaking to them from his heart and he's saying, little children, it's, it's a term of affection. He says, yet I, a little while and I'm with you and you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Over the next three chapters, 11 times, Jesus is going to say, I'm, where are you going? I can't come. I'm leaving you. That's why we know this to be the farewell discourse is because repeatedly, 11 times, Jesus is gonna make statements like this that, that is saying to them, I just want you to know where I'm going, you cannot come. And so what you're gonna find is the disciples are trying to wrap their minds around that. They're trying to be like, what does Jesus mean where he's going? We can't go and all this kind of stuff. Why is he leaving us? 
And so you're going to see throughout it, you're going to find five questions. And Peter will be the initiator of most of these questions because he's good at that. And he's good at asking, like, what do you mean? He'll miss half of it because he's still thinking about what Jesus said when he said, you can't go where I'm going. And so you're going to see this 11 times where Jesus is going to say, listen, where I'm going, you can't come. I'm going to leave you. Why? Because he's preparing them for what is to come after his ascension into heaven. So again, we can look back now and know that the disciples in the moment weren't able to really probably grasp that fully. So he's preparing their hearts for his departure. And in verse 34 and 35, he then unpacks how we can glorify God through our lives. He says this in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So the second idea that Jesus wanted his disciples to, to have in their mind as he would depart from them is that they would love one another. Now he makes an interesting statement in that he says, a new commandment I give to you. Now, if you know the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18, Jesus had already commanded them to love their neighbor. So love wasn't a new command. It had already been around for a long time. So what is Jesus talking about when he says, a new commandment that I give to you? It is new, not in the sense of nobody's ever done it. It is new in the sense of I've renewed the commandment that I've given to you to love one another. How is it renewed? It is renewed in that Jesus himself is our motivation and our example of love. So now we look to Jesus as our example. That's why he said, as I have loved you. So our motivation to love one another, the example we follow is Jesus. This is what makes it a new commandment is now we look to Jesus as the one who motivates us to love and as the example for us to follow. How do I know that God loved us? John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. How do we know God loved us? He gave us his son. Amen. How do we know Jesus loved us? John 15, we'll get there in a few weeks. In verse 12 and verse 13 says this, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. How do we know that Jesus loved us? He died for us. Clint quoted it earlier, Romans, Romans 5.8. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. As Jesus has loved us, we're to love one another. How did Jesus love us? He gave of himself. He died for us. This is the good news of the gospel today. Today, if you're sitting in this room and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you've listened to these baptism testimonies and what is all this like, here's what I was before Christ and after Christ. Here's what's happened in their life. They have realized that without Christ in their life, they are empty and void. But having put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, now they have new purpose in life. Now they have eternal life in Jesus Christ. And today you can experience that love. 
Today, you can know that love by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. And I would encourage you to do that today, right where you're sitting, to understand we can't love each other until right, I think based on these words, we can't love each other right until we have accepted the love of Jesus Christ into our hearts. Because we love motivated by Jesus. We follow his example of laying down his life for us. Paul continues this idea and fleshes it out for us in Ephesians chapter 5 in verse one and two, where he's talking about what does it mean for us to be followers of Jesus Christ? He says, therefore be imitators of God, follow God's example as beloved children and walk in love. How are we to walk in love, Paul? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So again, he's tying together love and giving up yourself, love and laying down your life. Paul says, you wanna know how to love each other? Lay down your life like Jesus laid down his life for us. He goes on and he talks about how husbands and wives' relationships should work. And he says in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's this correlation in scripture of loving and giving up yourself. And so when Jesus says, In John 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. He's saying love is laying down our life for each other. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul lays out for us what love looks like in the context of a church life. And here's what he says. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. This is love that lays down its life for the other person. So Jesus says, you wanna know what it looks like for you to glorify God? It's to love God each other. It's to love one another. Then look at verse 35. By this, he says, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The goal of our love for one another is evangelism. When we talk about evangelism, we often think about knocking on doors or handing out tracts or sharing our faith and all those things are true of evangelism, but rarely do we talk about evangelism by saying, hey, the way we as a church family love each other speaks volumes to the world outside of here. The way we treat each other on social media, the way we treat each other when we see each other in public, the way we treat each other with people we don't agree with, it says a lot to the world outside of these walls. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples by your love one for another. I feel bad for all four of my kids because they hear this comment often. Your kids look just like you. You know, so, and I feel, I do feel seriously bad for them 
that wherever we go, they have to hear, you know, if people are meeting us or whatever, man, your kids look just, it's like, why couldn't they have looked like Ruth, right? It would have been a lot better for their life if they would have looked like my wife, but they get that comment all the time. There's just that family resemblance. If you knew my older brothers and you see them out, always people are like, well, you're a Doss for sure, right? Like there's things that they see in our family that brings that together, that family resemblance. Uh, my oldest sons are twins and of course, they get that a lot. You know what I'm saying? If you're a twin in the room, you can testify to this where people will come up and talk to them. And it's like, you're talking to the wrong person. So just the other night, we were at a basketball game. The game was over. We're hanging out in the cafe area. And uh, my son who doesn't play basketball, we're walking out together. And this grandpa who is there to watch his, his grandkid play comes up to my son and says, hey, great game tonight, man. You're really good. And my son was good to say, well, that's my brother, we're twins, right? He, so poor guys, they just live with that world that they're getting mistaken for each other. All the, so if it's a good thing, I guess it's good, but if it's a bad thing, probably a tough deal. But there's just that family resemblance, right? And here's what Jesus is saying to his disciples. Our family resemblance is not that you hang out with me. It's not that we're gonna keep going through Jerusalem and Judea and all these places. The family resemblance after I'm gone is how you love one another. That when people walk into our church, when people hear we're from Antioch Bible Baptist Church, that the thing that will mark us, the thing that will make us different is how we love one another. Amen. That people should look at our lives and say, man, that church lays down their life for each other. The second century theologian Tertullian noted how the Christians being persecuted by the Roman Empire were seen to fulfill this commandment because the pagans in that time would say of the Roman, of the believers in Rome, it is mainly the deeds of love so noble that led many to put a brand upon us. See, they say how they love one another. See how they are ready even to die for one another. In the second century, that is what they were noted for is their love for one another. I think John, in 1 John chapter four, and Clint read this during our worship time of the word and, and, and song, in 1 John chapter 4, it says this in verses 10 through 12. This helps us see it even more. He says, and this is love, not that we have loved God, and this is the beauty of the gospel, but that he loved us, and he sent his son to be the propitiation, the, the substitute for our sins. God absorbed our just punishment on the cross. Beloved, then he says, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. So our love for others flows from God's love for us. But listen to what John says. No one has ever seen God. It's like, what does that have to do with the death of Jesus on the cross and his love for us and, and our love for one another? He says, no one has ever seen God. And then he goes, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love for us is perfected in us. What is he saying? No one has seen God, but you know how they're gonna see God? By how we love one another. 
That's how they're going to see God in this world, is the way that we as believers, as followers of Jesus, love one another. Now, are we to love our enemies? Yes, Jesus is clear on that. But in the context of this farewell discourse, he is talking about the people who's the back of the head you're looking at, right? He's talking about these people that are followers of Jesus Christ that are together and say, we're a part of this church family. How we love each other is an example to the world. It is a way that we show Jesus to the world. So Jesus' initial focus to his friends was the glory of God, the glorifying of God and love for one another. So he is thinking about where they are going to go after he is after he's, he dies on the cross, he's buried and he rises again and, and, and ascends to what does it look like for them? He, he's, he wants them to glorify God and he wants them to love one another. So here's my challenge for you. It's really simple today, simple, but hard to live. The first thing I want to challenge you to do is to live for the glory of God. It's significant, I think, And I believe that he would take the first two sentences or the first two verses and use glorify so many times. He wanted them to understand what was to come and that Jesus was gonna glorify God and he was gonna be glorified through the cross and you and I exist for the glory of God. In the early, uh, in, in, the, in the times where they would catechize people that would come to the church, the idea is they would say a, a question to them and you would repeat it back. It was a way for you to learn the gospel. They would say this, what is the chief end of man? This was the first question. And they would say, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is why you and I exist for the glory of God. So why don't we live each day for the glory of God? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink, something minimum, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Do all to magnify God. So let me challenge you this week. As you parent, parent to the glory of God. As you engage in entertainment this week, enjoy that entertainment to the glory of God. As you work this week, work to the glory of God. As you go to school this week and you do your schoolwork, do your schoolwork to the glory of God. As you rest this week, rest to the glory of God. As you play this week, play to the glory of God. As you suffer this week, suffer to the glory of God. Live each day, church, to glorify God, to magnify God. Then, pretty self-explanatory from the text. I would encourage you to love each other. To lay down your life for each other. It's easier said than done, isn't it? We live in a world that talks a lot about this idea of self-love and and in many ways I, I get the heart behind what they're saying but one thing that I struggle with in my heart is I really love myself too much it's not that I need to love myself more the reality in my heart is that I need to love you more you see even 
to stand up and speak to you on a Sunday to Sunday basis, oftentimes I can do this out of love for myself. So that looks like after I finish speaking, I go and I think about, was my sermon good? Were my, did my illustrations hit right, right? Did they, did they really hear what I was saying? And all I think about when I walk off this platform is my own. That's self-love, right? So I, rather than, here's how it works out in my life, rather than when I walk off this stage, I'm looking for ways to love you better. I'm looking for ways to lay down my life and, and think of myself less, right? And think about how could I have maybe said it in a way that would have encouraged your heart more? Not whether I was good and did a good job, but whether I could have encouraged you and poured my life into you more. And so why I say that to say, I think it's really easy for us to just love ourselves when God has called us to love each other. And so I wanna challenge you this week, who in our church family can you lay down your life for this week? What is, who is one person that you can send a text to, to just say, hey, I want you to know I'm thinking about you, I'm praying for you. If you need anything, I'm here for you. Who could you love this week by laying down your life? I, yesterday we had our men's breakfast and at our men's breakfast, we typically do a Bible study in regard. This year we're going through a, it's called Faith Driven Entrepreneur. It's a video series and it's neat to see uh, these entrepreneurs that are starting businesses and how they're doing it to honor and glorify God. But then part of our time together, we have a marketplace speaker. So we have a, a man come in in the church and he gives his story of coming to Christ and where he works and all this and on yesterday, we had a guy by the name of Dale Bruto come and share his story. And Dale's been a part of our church family for 39 years. Isn't that credible? That's a long time to be a part of a church family. And I loved hearing Dale's story. I loved that he shared a month after him and his wife, Sherry, got here, that Brother Joe, that's our founding pastor, Brother Joe led him to the Lord which is really cool, led him to the Lord. And so Dale's growth in Christ has been here and it's been a growth of Christ for over 39 years. And as I was listening to Dale's story and Sherry's story in, in a way, what I was blown away by and what captured my heart as I thought about the message today is that when Dale shares his story of coming to faith in Christ and being a part of their church family, you know what his story was? Loving other people. The thing that drew him to Antioch was that people loved him, but what's kept him at Antioch was that he's loving other people. He says, most of people know me, not because of Dale, but they know his wife, Sherry, who's, if you've had a baby at Antioch over the last 39 years, she's probably held your baby in the nursery. And Dale works in our Cubbies ministry. His name was even mentioned in one of the baptism uh, testimonies. But what has kept Dale and Sherry engaged at Antioch? It isn't that they've come to be loved. It's come that they've loved others, that they've died to themselves, that they've poured out their life here. And church, it's really dangerous for us to make this all about us 
consuming? What can you give to me rather than the people that you're sitting around, seeing them as people that God has put in your life to love, that God has put in your life to lay your life down for? And so I want to challenge us as a church, as members of Antioch Bible Baptist Church, as a family, that as we would move into the week ahead, that we would love each other. If you feel disconnected at Antioch, love someone. Isn't that a song? I gotta love someone. Is that, is that help me, Clint, man? Is that a song? It is a song. Yeah, thanks. I was, I was thinking about that. I started humming it earlier today when I was thinking about it this morning. You gotta love somebody. Is that right? It's, <laughs> you're not helping me, man. I'm, we're trying. What? It's Keith Urban. So we had a pastor. This is, has nothing to do with loving each other. And I got to be done. Uh, this has nothing to do with, but I, I'm not a big music guy. Who was the guy we were talking about? Oh. Phil Collins. I, I never, I didn't know who Phil Collins was. Exactly. That's, they, they almost threw me out of the van when we were on this pastor's trip this week. Like, you don't know. It's like, I, I'm not really that much into music. So we listened to Phil Collins on our pastor's trip. Now I know who he is. We can move on. Love each other this week. All right, let's pray. <laughs> Father, thank you for the difference that you've made in our life. We are in this room because you glorified your father through your death on the cross. The only reason we are in this room is because of that. And so we are grateful that you were willing to glorify your Father, through going to the cross for our sins, and we praise you today for that. I ask, Lord, that you would help us as your church to love each other because of your love for us. May that be the motivation. May it not be our political views. May it not be our financial statuses. May it not be any of those things, but may our love for each other be because you have first loved us. And I pray that the members of our church would love each other really well. And that the thing that would mark our family is our love for one another. And in doing that, that you would be magnified, that you would be made much of. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. You're always welcome at Antioch. If you desire more information, please go to AntiochBBC.org. That's AntiochBBC.org. God's best to you.